The Isle of Man General Election 2021 coverage on Manx Radio. Good evening. The constituency of Russian is in the far south of the Isle of Man and is made up of the villages of Port Aaron, Port St Mary and most of the parish of Russian. It has borders with Arbury, Maloo and Castletown and Glenfaber and Peel. <coughs> Notable recent MHKs include Sir Miles Walker, the first Chief Minister of the Isle of Man who held this seat for 20 years from 1976, and the late Noel Kringle who stood down as the second President of Tynwald in 2011 after holding the position for 11 years. Before the dissolution of the House of Keys on the 12th of August, the MHKs were Lawrence Skelly and Dewan Watterson. The candidates for General Election 2021 are Michelle Haywood, Mark Kemp, Andrew Langan-Newton, and Dewan Watterson. Michelle Haywood, why do you want to be an MHK for Russian? I've spent five years serving as local commissioner and three years as chair, and during that time I've managed to deal with a number of local issues but actually I think I could achieve more on a national stage and I could actually tackle some bigger issues on behalf of the constituents. Mark Kemp. Um, 2016, I was a swing voter of 55 off getting elected. I felt my manifesto was very strong. I've produced another strong manifesto. I believe in the people of Russian, I believe in the strength of the constituency, I believe in the people of the Isle of Man and I believe that we have a bright future, but we need the right people inside to do that. Andrew Langan-Newton. To take leadership on the issues that are important in the transformation of the community that's going to benefit the whole island and especially the community in Russian. Dewan Watterson. I want to be an MHK now for the same reason that I did when I stood for the first time 15 years ago. It's because I'm passionate about the people of Russian and the people of the Isle of Man, our sense of community, our sense of national pride and to make this island a better place. Uh, so to some of the issues around today, and first of all to Michelle Haywood, uh, the issue of the underclass and poverty in the Isle of Man uh, and the fact that a lot of the Isle of Man are terribly well off and some people aren't. How can we square that circle? I think there's a number of things that we need to do to tackle this at source and, and poverty comes from a number of routes. Part of it is about zero-hours contracts and unstable working conditions. Part of it is about inability to access good quality housing at an affordable price and there is some blocking that goes on in access to local authority housing as well. And then also we have quite high living costs here, so fuel costs are high, particularly food costs are higher and, and all the goods that you purchase are higher and so we have to recognise that actually we need to provide support at that, that margin of, of our society really, that it's being systematically kept in that, in that boundary. Joan Watterson. Uh, thank you. I mean, as uh, someone who chaired the Poverty Select Committee for the last few years, um, one of the recommendations that came out in July that was overwhelmingly accepted by Tynwald was bringing the minimum wage uh, up to the living wage. And that's going to take 16% of Manx working families out of poverty. So that's part of the ingredients that we need to see in terms of, as Michelle said about, uh, housing and, and so many other areas to lift standards around the island. Andrew Langan-Newton. We really need to see leadership from the politicians on this issue to build up the security and environment. And that's going to take a number of tools, including progressive taxation to empower people, but also really investing in the long-term assets to enable them, like education. We really underfund education. Public transport should be free. These are things that are really high cost to individuals, and we can really benefit their outcomes. And long-term investment in renewable energy for low-income households. Could you be more specific about public transport? How will that people put more, more money in people's 
people's pockets. Well, people who ride the bus from Port Erin to Douglas, they have a cost which is more than driving to Douglas, finding parking and paying for that. So actually, we're putting a tax on everyone who's using the bus because <laughs> it's a greater cost than driving a car. But actually, there are huge benefits for our community for more people using public transport. So there's spillover cost and benefits as well. Mark Kemp. Yep, I have to agree with June in terms of raising the minimum wage to the living wage. That's going to raise uh, people, well, quite a few people out of the poverty trap and the income trap. Additionally, we need to look at education. We need to be looking at what the precipitating factors are that create poverty later on. I mean, if you've got 30% of every GCSE cohort that is failing their GCSEs, then their job, um, the, the scope of jobs that they can move into is actually reduced. There's a raft of other issues regarding uh, poverty, and we mustn't forget about homelessness and food and fuel poverty that we have in this island. These are big issues that the next house needs to tackle. Okay, well, let's go to education. Do you think the education for non-university students, ones who don't go to university, is that education good enough, and is it serving them? Um, well, I'll say very quickly that I've taught at UCM uh, when I was doing my teacher training, and to get your curriculum given to you the day before you're due to teach isn't good enough. So there are some structural issues, or there were some structural issues back then. I've spoken to colleagues who work there now. Those issues are still there. So there, need, there needs to be more done for non-university students. We could look at a sixth form college, for example. Joan Watterson. Uh, yeah, I think we've got a great range of um, post-school education up at the college um, in terms of apprenticeships and those apprenticeships are now diversifying into other things like accounting and, and others. I think one of the biggest barriers we have to a more successful education system on the Isle of Man, certainly in the south, is the need to replace Castlewishing High School, which is a crumbling wreck and has been for some time now. Uh, vocational training? Absolutely, that's the one meant about up at the college and so we've got a lot of apprenticeships up there um, and we have taster days for those from 14 onwards and that's really positive in terms of giving people that opportunity so that they can start to see an alternative to school at that early age and keep them motivated and into education. Andrew Langan-Newton. We have a predilection with the idea that the optimum thing is to go to university, it's not. We should, it's important for people to go to university but we should be taking pride in the important roles that people who don't go to university and focusing on apprenticeships and giving that greater funding because that's going to create the economies that we need for the future, the transition, the energy transition. And we're massively underfunding education on this. We're also teaching education with two uh, bigger class sizes so we're not giving enough contact time to the students and so we massively need to pump up the funding in education because that's going to transform a whole community. Michelle Hayward. I think the problems start earlier than perhaps whether people are going to university or not. I think that we fail some of our children as they go through school to diagnose them with conditions like dyslexia and dyspraxia and we fail to put that support in so as they go through school they become more and more separated from the mainstream education. I think we then push everyone at, at year 10 to go and do 8, 9, 10 GCSEs and that doesn't suit a lot of children and what I'd really like to see is that we scale back from that and we say actually do you know what some functional maths and functional English any three other subjects and if it's hospitality and tourism and catering that are your three other subjects at that level imagine a system where we had our school leavers leaving with a really high percentage of them having five GCSEs or equivalent we're at the UK national average at the moment and that's just not acceptable because we've got a system that could respond and then I think 
I, I agree with you and the, the idea that you, you could use the college to do more vocational training, but that needs to start earlier. Children become disaffected around the age of 14, and if we haven't caught them before then with their learning support and then given them some sensible options. But we've got like, you know, sectors like hospitality crying out for staff, okay. and we're not making our skilled staff. Do you think Manx politics should be taught in Manx schools? I think beyond Manx politics, but as well world citizenship. I'm not a huge fan of religious education in schools because I don't think that suits a lot of children and it's a half a GCSE that they, you know, they get forced into it's just doing. That when we talk to a lot of young people, they don't know the first thing about Manx politics. They don't know about the history of the House of Keys, Legco, Hango Hill. A lot of them don't know. They know more about American politics than they know about Manx politics. And we're asking to the vote age 16. Yeah, and I'll tell you what else they don't know. They don't know how to read a bank statement properly. They don't know how to manage their finance. They don't know how to fill in a tax return. All of those things will start hitting them. And those that have jobs when they are teenagers will end up in that tax system very early on. We're not giving them life skills within okay. universities. Mark within Kemp, do you think we should teach Manx politics and the constitution in Manx schools? Yeah, absolutely. We got taught it when I was at school. I knew about our Viking parliament. I was proud of it. Okay, Andrew Langan-Newton. Yeah, I think we need to build the society that we want to live in, and that is young, engaged individuals who have the skills to live fulfilling lives, to live independent lives, to fulfil their economic and cultural and social pursuits, and that includes engaging with the important history of the community that we build around. And I was fortunate to go to Junior Timwald and experience that, but that's a limited exposure, and we can invest so much more in giving that and engaging our young people, who then we push out the door and expect them to go straight into the workplace at 16, potentially vote in fundamental elections like we're experiencing now and we're just underskilling those individuals. Joan Watterson. Yeah, for the last 15 years I've brought every year six class in the south of the island through uh, the House of Keys, given them an immersive experience for half a day, uh, given them the tour around, tried to make it relevant for that 10-year-old age group to bring them in to learn about ma how Max politics works and then engage again at Junior Tinwald. There's so much more that can be done. The restriction, of course, is in teacher time, in class time. It's certainly not a lack of willingness on behalf of the um, Max politicians to get roll our sleeves up and engage with young people. Okay, Joan Watterson, what's your green agenda? What's your future for a sustainable Isle of Man? My priority is, is definitely around decarbonising our grid and we've, uh, we've got a number of options there in the consultation document um, about getting, but we've got so much catching up to do. We've got a lot of um, wind opportunity, we've got a lot of solar opportunity on this island that is just is not being exploited. We're 20 years behind the rest of the world in terms of greening. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can start with onshore and offshore wind, putting solar panels on the south face of every government building and providing low-cost loans or, or interest-free loans to people to encourage them to, to do this themselves as well. Kroger Gas. Kroger Gas, um, they've got a licence. Uh, I'm happy for that licence to be uh, honoured and um, if that's, uh, that's going to help decarbonise the Isle of Man, then I think that's a, that's a reasonable way forward. Andrew Langan-Newton. Absolutely not. This idea about this gas is asphyxiation. This is taking the focus off, the important focus of politicians and civil society away from where we need to go. And that is a transformation of our community where everyone needs to come with us. We can't have pon politicians pontificating away on these issues and delaying action. Howard Quayle it's very sad to see what happened at the weekend, but he made a decision in May 2019 to call a climate emergency in action over two years. We've got nothing to tell for that except reports. We need action today, and that's what I would like to see. And do you think this, uh, this feels the, discon the disconnect, really, between politicians and the public who hear all about 
uh, climate emergency and a green agenda, but get no meaningful specifics. You are pushing against a, an open door there, Andy Wynn. You believe that? that? Is, you uh, believe that's an open door? No, uh, you were pushing against an open door, saying what I would say, yeah, which yeah. is people want to see solar panels on roof spaces. People want to see the government taking the lead on this issue. But all we've seen over two years is politicians pontificating and inaction. We need decisions today which bring the community with us because there's more than just putting solar panels on. People believe in change, change that they want to see. Uh, Michelle Hayward. Um, I think if, if you're starting to look at this issue, we, June's right, we have a number of things we need to do to catch up. Um, I don't agree that necessarily it's been two years of inaction. There have been reports commissioned because actually what Tim Ward needs to do is make some fairly rapid decisions. We've got ageing infrastructure in our power generation. We do know we need to replace that. And you can't make those big decisions without the expert advice. And so that expert advice has been sought. The climate change team is working very hard. There's a number of things that are coming on stream, and it will take time. So at the point where you've declared an emergency, that's fine. But if you do any emergency training at all for anyone, you always say, stop and think and then act. And we're in the thinking phase, and I know that that it can be impatient for some people to do that. But unless we think and we make those right decisions, we could end up saddling ourselves with some big white elephants and some huge expenses that won't achieve what we need to achieve. Of all the doors that you've knocked over the past uh, month or so, um, how many of them have had the climate emergency and green agenda as their number one concern? Uh, probably maybe 10-15% on climate emergency, but actually probably about the same amount, again, talking about conserving biodiversity and conserving the natural environment. So I think there is a general uh, idea that we do need to act. And uh, politicians you know, have an inertia because your, own years, your lifespan is the next election. And so it's difficult to take unpopular decisions now that are very, very important for our future because actually whoever is elected, that could be the end of their political career. So you have to be brave and bold to take those decisions because they're the right thing to do. Mark Kemp. Yep, so I do actually support the, <clears throat> the higher ambition pathway towards being sustainable. But we have to be mindful of the energy trial Emma, which is affordability, sustainability, and, um, sorry, the third one escapes me. But the energy trial Emma is essentially, can we afford it? Is the um, resilience of the supply going to be there? And is it going to be sustainable? So <clears throat> the Arab report uh, came up with three initial solutions. Option three seems to be the what for me looks like the best um, solution. So that's where we repurpose the interconnector, build a redundancy uh, interconnector. We build um, solar on public buildings and new builds. Um, unfortunately, within that uh, solution was biomass. Now, I wasn't particularly keen on that, so I had to think in my manifesto, I've come up with um, compressed air energy storage. That's something that we can look at in the future because within that, you can actually store your energy supply for a long period of time and that's going to be one of the challenges we have to uh, conquer going forwards um, sorry just very quickly in terms of uh, green agenda as well recycling and upcycling we need to do more of it okay andrew lang and newton we're talking about diversifying the economy uh, to pay for everything that we want to do in the future. Uh, can you foresee any new industries that you'd like to see introduced to the island? Well, I like very much like the concept of resilience. Like, how do we become a resilient community which we can build micro-economies within our community? We rely heavily on imports to the Isle of Man. And we're an island, so we're always going to have imports. But what can we do where we can build up every pound that goes in the Isle of Man massively benefits the local economy and a multiplier effect? It's like, how can we build up long-term investments? Where do we 
agriculture is a great opportunity, but it needs government to take the lead to go, okay, maybe we'll buy apples from local environments over five years, build some contracts so it gradually gets up. And so agriculture and other industries can have government as a procurer. So, yes, building up resilience actually makes money that we generate from other means to go longer in the Isle of Man. And the energy is a great part of that as well. Mark Kemp. Yep, so in terms of the sustainable island, we have to look at the diversification of the economy, but we also have to look all the way back at education. So a point I was going to make earlier was regarding um, changing the, the way we do Key Stage 3. Now, we have to preserve the overall rounded learning that students have, but we also need to be looking at, can we introduce more STEM-based subjects and can we introduce more vocational subjects earlier on in the curriculum uh, in, in school years? So we're actually creating pathways for students so we're not getting this, this failure at 30% of every GCSE cohort. We're creating, uh, it sounds a bit cold, but the workers of the future who are able to fulfill some of these green uh, roles in terms of diversifying the economy. Um, and, you know, and there's a range of other things. We can be looking at hemp products. We can be looking at anything out there that's AI robotics. Just because it's the Isle of Man doesn't mean we can't have it. And we've been slow over the years. Are so you saying we lack ambition? We certainly do. If you look, take PokerStars, for example. PokerStars came in. I mean, I've worked there, so I know how dynamic that company is and how dynamic the industry is. But what happened was PokerStars came in and the then Department of Enterprise, or whatever it was called when it was first created, decided to sit back. Brilliant, we've got them. The rest of e-gaming will follow. And it didn't. And it was seven years later, and all of a sudden there's a panic and government are going to these ICE forums and all the rest of it. And yes, so we, we're, not, we're not fast enough in coming forwards. Joe and Watterson. I think we underestimate just how resilient the Manx economy is. I mean, we are only sitting here just a few months after the last lockdown. We've got unemployment is down at 0.9% again. I mean, that's, that's part of the Manx economic miracle. Um, I'm sure we'll later come on to talk about housing and how that's a, a, a barrier to uh, the, the growth of the Manx economy. But in, in terms of diversifying it, I mean, the government is not there to sort of necessarily drive the economy. It's there to help. And one of the... the phrases that strikes fear into the uh, business people of the island is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Because um, it, is, it is like to slow things down. What we're there to do is provide the regulatory environment to allow the businesses to succeed, rather than try and micromanage everything. Michelle Hayward. I believe uh, economic development are working on about 23 different sectors where they're trying to, to support the, the environment to bring businesses here. I think one of the key things that the Isle of Man government could do, and it, it's, it's changing their procurement processes so that there is a, a, always an assumption that if you can go to a local provider that you do that because very often we'll see procurement processes run where they're in awe to big companies that come across from the UK, and just because they have 400 staff and they're bidding for this little contract, it means you overlook the local company with 10 staff. But those 10 local jobs with people who actually care about what happens right here on the island are far more valuable than giving a contract to a big firm. And I think we need to shift the balance of how we score procurement to make sure that it's locally driven supply. And we've done this in Port St Mary. It's, it's like written into everything we do that it's local supply as far as we can go and, and that's how we can keep that money circulating within the Manx economy and keep supporting Manx jobs. Uh, Joanne Watterson, does uh, the south of the Isle of Man, in particular mm. Russian, the two villages, have a future in tourism and what can be done? 
Absolutely. And if you just look at, if you step out the front of the railway station here, you'll have seen the investment that's been made in this, uh, in this area in the last few years, um, the regeneration of Station Road. And I think what needs to happen next is that needs to carry on round into, into Church Road. Um, we need to promote the, the retail offering as well as the, the hotels. More uh, hotel bed spaces likely to be appearing down where the Marine Biological Station is. Is anything been... ever going to happen at the Marine Biological Station? Yeah, I, 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 I was, fortunately, this has um, been bought by a, a local developer, someone who lives in the port and is very keen to see it done. Uh, I believe that speaking to him over the summer when I knocked on his door, um, it's a matter of waiting for the planning permission to come through and they can't wait to get started. And how long do you think if planning permission were given today, how long would it be before something actually happens? That's exactly what I asked him and it took about next spring. So I, I think that's a really positive move. We're also seeing um, the redevelopment of the Bay Queen again in, in the next sort of 12, 18 months as well, which I'm really uh, optimistic about Do you about think well. there'll ever be a marina in Port St Mary? No. As a 24-hour port? No, I don't think so. I don't think that that money is going to be kicking around and the sort of investment that's going to be needed and the sort of um, things that normally make a marina pay are just not available in, in Port St Mary. So I, I don't think we're going to be finding that sort of money. For Andrew Lang and Newton. On tourism, yeah. Well, I think we benefit at the moment from having a great Isle of Man with a great heritage connection, Max National Heritage doing amazing things, and we have great spaces. What we can't lose is those great spaces, and that really goes to planning. We can't be putting up housing estates which aren't fit for the future, but also don't reflect the cultural benefit that we have in our communities. Port St Mary is such an important place because it's really retained that fishing village feel, and that's how we should be building our communities for the future. Ones where we can walk to the shop where we can walk to a, a pub and walk to a restaurant and it's captured that historical connection. Not being put up poor quality houses which aren't fit for the purpose in terms of solar panels and no heat pumps etc but also don't reflect the heritage of our society. Now you're leader of the Green Party, is there such a thing as green tourism? Yes, there is, and we've certainly got great opportunities uh, for e-bikes. When I speak to people who are selling e-bikes, they're going wild because they can't sell them quick enough. And that's a great opportunity for low-carbon tourism. People getting the boat to the Isle of Man with an e-bike or coming here to rent one and travelling around our amazing forests in a clean way and a safe way. And we could do more to create footpaths, to create space, or spaces on roads, not like we've seen in Gansey, which isn't fit for purpose as a cycleway, but really investing with a vision for the future of the Isle of Man, which captures the importance of green future, but also tourism and money in the Isle of Man economy. And Michelle Hayward? I think tourism globally has shifted in the wake of the pandemic. I think there is a natural reluctance from people now to travel. And even though we see the headlines where you know, it's a, I'm booking my holiday to Spain because I can get there and we're not on the red list, people are generally wary that those restrictions might change and we're not genuinely not out of the woods yet. I think what that's driven is a, a view to local tourism. So in, in the UK, all of the seaside resorts have been pretty much rammed right the way across the summer. It's been impossible to book anywhere for sort of staycations. And the Isle of Man, as things open up, has the possibility of benefiting from that. I think what we've done is, as people have discovered, that you don't have to go to the Med to get a good holiday and that there are other places around the British Islands that you could go and explore. And I think that's where our market's likely to come from. Mark Kemp. Yeah, I'm just going to do a quick plug for e-bikes. I've got a really dodgy knee. They are amazing. Andrew, I'm with you 100% <laughs> on that one. But um, in terms of tourism down here in the south of the island, walk out down the road. We've all seen the beach down there. It is incredible. Russian Port Erin has the best beach on the island, hands down. Can we do more with it? Well, we've got those, those huts down there now, which I think is a fantastic addition. We can have inflatable obstacle courses down on that beach to increase the offering. This is great for kids as well locally. 
and we've got to give them more to do. But in terms of overall tourism, we've got to be mindful that during the midst of the COVID pandemic, the Isle of Man was being looked upon as a really fantastic place, a destination for people to move to, destination for people to go on holiday to. And then we kind of messed it up over the last few months. And I think there was, there was talk, pardon the expression, but there was talk of Plague Island and things like that. So we've, cut, we've sort of knocked ourselves on the head a little bit over this one. But in terms of what the Isle of Man has to offer, Yes, there is a blend of the quaint, but we also have in Douglas a bit more of the new. I don't see why we can't have a blend of both down here. And just finally, just on the cosy nook, um, I'll put a marker down on that one now, where I think we should preserve the facade of the cosy nook and actually build out something a bit more modern out the back of it. So we've got the old and the new going on there as an example. Uh, so, Michelle Haywood, why do some young people perceive that there's a barrier to getting onto the property market on the Isle of Man? And secondly, are we building enough public sector houses? We're in that weird situation, and, and I think I was in the same situation years ago when I was doing scientific research, and you, you have a two-year contract and you can't show that you've got you know, long-term employability, even though I had been fully employed. But the loan-to-value to ratios that you can get now are, are just not suiting those coming onto the market for the first place. That's, that's a global shift. That's caused by low interest rates and, and everything like that, and then a reluctance... Um, from lenders to take that on. I was really fortunate when I got my first house that somebody looked at me and said, OK, you've had five years of paying rent at this level, therefore, yes, we can, we can get a mortgage sorted for you and we'll accept that as proof of, of affordability. And we don't have anything like that on offer in our market. I've been really interested in looking at Gibraltar where they actually have a national savings bank that specifically targets loans for those first-time buyers and for island residents. And in Gibraltar so you that, get a 50% discount. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think we, need, we seriously need to look at something <laughs> like that because we are putting our young people in the position where they are stopped from getting onto the market and even those who are registered on the first time buyers list can't find a property that comes within the, the boundaries and I know they've changed recently but it's not enough. Okay Andrew Lang and Newton. I think there's two issues here there's both um, the properties that are being built and the properties that are being sold and the speculation that's going on like that where everyone's hearing about this and we need to really grab that grab that by the by the wrist by the throat however in, <laughs> metaphorically but we need to put in tax measures that's going to disincentivize that and make that very difficult for speculation in a housing market. So you mean a maximum number of properties can be owned by one person or entity? Yeah, or, or limits on um, how many you can buy or and um, taxation measures to... Taxation on profit, perhaps. Absolutely, and, and numbers are buying, and we see that in the land registry, but we can do more of that. We really need to do that. So the other issue is vacant properties, and we're hearing a lot about this in the area because the properties I've been going around, you see many, and this is an issue... In Russian? In Russian, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and this is an issue not only because a property has been taken away from a market where we really need to have it, but also because it's damaging the local environment it's just left to deteriorate it's damaging the house prices for the properties next door and maybe structural issues as well so we really need taxation measures to incentivize these properties to go back in the market because that's terrible for our society when we have people who can't access the housing markets but properties just sit there sitting there deteriorating okay joe and watterson yeah australia has, a, has that sort of model where non-resident uh, landlords are taxed at a higher rate and that's something i think we possibly need to to look at here and um, we do need a rental sector on the isle of man that is really 
really important. 16% um, of our houses are public sector uh, houses, and that's probably about the right proportion. Um, but are the right people in those houses? And that's another, uh, another issue we will what have. What do you mean by the right kind of people? Well, because in, t in terms of those that need it, it's about making sure that at the end of a five-year tenancy that people need to reapply for right. them and making sure that the, those catch up. So um, making sure that the 16% the who need it are in the 16% of uh, public sector housing. Uh, I would agree that there are a disproportionate number of uh, empty properties around the island. I think the last thing I, I saw was 1,000. Um, in terms of uh, dilapidated properties, um, Tinwald gave powers to local authorities to deal with these uh, five years ago, and they're just not being used. So we need to understand why, why? they're not. Why? Why? Well, that, that's it. We need to understand why they haven't been used, because there has been a real reluctance on behalf of uh, local authorities to use these uh, places, despite the most egregious examples around the island. I can answer some of that. It, okay, it's because they're all, difficult to, to, to okay, use. For the local all, authorities, Mark it's expensive. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. I was going <laughs> to let you crack on there. Um, so we're, we're talking about the issues surrounding um, these houses and getting people on, onto the, the property ladder. Yeah, why some young people feel the ladder's been taken away from them? Well, I was, I'll come to that in a second, but I just, want to, I just want to say, look, we've got homelessness over here. We've got a big issue with it. Now, with some of these empty properties, there could be an opportunity here for some brownfield regeneration whereby we can get people off the street or off someone's couch or out of their car. So I just want to say that and just say, look, we've got to be mindful of these, these issues as well. But in terms of the issue that we're discussing right now specifically, I think it's a multi-pronged approach. And I'd like to see, uh, if there are institutional investors, I'd like to see uh, a maximum of five houses per institutional investor. That's it. They form a company. They're taxed on that. Uh, and it's, they can't um, have several companies per beneficial owner either. It's just one. So the other thing as well, just very quickly, in terms of getting first-time buyers onto the ladder, what I'd like to see is... There's a, there's a company in Glasgow that creates ecological, sustainable homes. And these can be used, uh, they, they can be built quickly, they can uh, go up on the Isle of Man, they're, they're ecologically responsible, but they're also cheap enough to conquer that issue whereby we're trying to get people on the ladder. And what we need to do is we need to make sure we've got homes that remain as homes for people so they don't come off uh, the, the first-time buyer or the affordable housing list. Okay, uh, right, we're halfway through our uh, show tonight. We're live at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Port Erin. Time to go. Oh, but I've got to uh, thank Julie Goldie, by the way, and everybody here at the Whistle Stop Cafe, including your fans in America who love the Whistle Stop Cafe. Uh, first of all, questions from the audience. Uh, your name and your question. Who have we got there? Your name and your question. Who was there? Somebody had a. There we are. Your name and question, please. Hang on, just a minute. Uh, Your name? name is Pauline Pennington. Uh -huh. We're frequently told that we live on an affluent island, and there's certainly money for capital spending on grandiose projects. Why then, I would like to ask the candidates, of provision of and timely access to primary health care, hospital treatment, mental health services, and dental treatment, at best disturbingly patchy? How would the candidates like to see the new administration address these problems to improve the situation? Andrew Lang and Newton. I think a big part of the issues we're facing as a society is increase of chronic disease and conditions in our society, and especially that's even starting at the primary school age. And we really need to reflect on prevention as a means to resolve these issues for the long term, and these are going to 
resolve these long waiting lists we're experiencing. But, but in the meantime? Well, I mean, it starts today. It starts with how we transform our society and education <laughs> and really investing in what food we put on the table for people, what food we put in our schools, what food we feed people in the hospital. Is that the right food that's going to give them the fulfilling benefits to live like healthy lives? Or are we just making things worse by what we're feeding people? Okay. So, Go on, sorry. Yeah, so prevention, but absolutely, we need to be prioritizing healthcare, mental healthcare as well, and especially in our young population coming out of COVID-19, increasing the opportunities in the schools and outside the schools for access mental health services. Mark Kemp, I'm going to say one word, we're probably all sick of hearing it, budget. The budget process is fundamentally flawed, and we need to change it. So if we go to a zero-based budgeting system, at least in the, in the first two or three years of this next administration, <laughs> we can make massive savings. For the lay, can... lay person, what's a zero-based budgeting system? Okay, so at the moment, the way government, very, very simply, the way government is doing things is they're taking last year's budget, although there is a process involved, but it's essentially last year's budget plus a bit, and whatever wastage sat within there is gone, right? So it's spent. We've had, um, sorry, Phil, the Slock Road as an example, that was wastage. We've TT World Series as wastage. You name it. It's in there. Now, zero-based budgeting, it's where we start at zero and we build our expenses up item by item. That includes the uh, staff resources as well. And we've seen massive increases in staffing in government and 45 million extra now in staffing costs. But where has that come from? Where, where's it been spent? Now, just very quickly, I'll just add that Manx Care are trying to recruit 200 headcounts and they're going to have to do what's called break the ceiling. Uh, in order to recruit those staff, they're going to have to spend a fortune to do it. So we've got to get the budget process right in order to do this, to fix these short-term problems. But we also need to be looking at capital expenditure. How are we ending up in these messes, these massive, massive messes? OK, Michelle Hayward. Um, I think the problems in healthcare have been longer coming than, than just recently. Um, the hospital is the size of a small district hospital, probably not even that if you compared it to UK. That makes recruitment of staff difficult. If you are training as a medic and you've got your three A's at A level and you go off to university to get into medicine, which is highly competitive, what you want to do when you come out is you want to work at a teaching hospital where the cases are challenging and you have expert supervisors who are helping you develop your career. And what you don't necessarily want to do is end up stuck somewhere in, in what's almost a backwater hospital. So I think we have to appreciate that actually, for the size of the population here, we have a fantastic facility, but what we have to do is be more realistic about what we can treat here and what we should be contracting in, because it's not acceptable to have surgeons that maybe do an operation 10 times a year, because they will not be hitting the standards of excellence that we want. It's much better to be able to send patients away to an, an expert hospital where that surgeon is doing that operation 10 times a week, and your outcomes will be better. One of the things that Manx Care has put into place is it's actually tracking patient outcomes for the first time. And I know I've, I've been a victim of not being treated very well by the hospital. And when you try and complain and when you try and put something right and when you try and ask for that data, it's just not there. So we've kind of taken our eye off the ball. And actually, it's, it's a, it's a longer-serving problem than, than just now. OK. All right, Joan Watterson. You know, when I was uh, elected chairman of the Public Accounts Committee back in 2016, one of the things we looked at was where's the biggest potential waste of government money and we looked, the first place we looked was Nobles Hospital not because the quality of service on the ground floor isn't right but actually because of their consistent failure 
over 25 years to deliver the strategic change that they've been putting in their plans. They've been doing wonderful planning and then never delivering it, things such as integrated care, things such as uh, dealing with waiting lists, things such as theatre processes. So that, the, the, the three reports that we've done not only led to Sir Jonathan Michael's review and the new structure that we've got that will deliver that strategic change, um, but it will also, uh, it's also had knock-ons in terms of looking at where we spend the money. Um, we spent uh, £10 million more here on consultants than we would if we'd employed them under similar terms and conditions in the UK, so we're already spending more on consultants here than, than the UK. Where we need to do is we need to work harder on um, the soft recruitment, because as Michelle's, Michelle's quite right, the Isle of Man is 40% the size of the smallest hospital trust in the UK. We are very small by UK standards. So we need to work on the soft aspects, the quality of life issues here on the Isle of Man, the lower tax, all these sort of soft issues that are going to bring people here because we are all, um, not just in the Isle of Man, but across uh, the British Isles as well, fishing in a really shallow pool for medical professionals. There's fewer people going into it, and um, there's fewer people staying in it because they're getting burnt out. It's becoming a harder, more kinetic job. Okay, briefly, Mark Kemp. Yeah, I just want to add two more things that the Nobles Hospital was in special measures between 2015 and 2018. So uh, medics' work wasn't being signed off by the General Medical Council. We've got to make that distinction right now so everyone is aware that there was a big problem and it's still a problem that we're dealing with now. The other big issue that we've got, we can talk all day about this being a small island, etc., etc., but we have fundamental issues and another one is GPs we cannot recruit them because of a, tra a pension transferability issue. Let's make that okay. public knowledge as well. Okay, your name and your question, sir. My name is Nick Willard. I'd like to ask each candidate, vaccine passports, are you in favour or not? Joan Watterson. Uh, no, I don't see the purpose of vaccine passports. Andrew Langan-Newton. No, I wouldn't see it as a priority, but I'd like to know more about the debate and if it came before Tim Wald, like it might do, and follow what the best practices are around the world. But at the moment... I'm not going, that's what we should move towards. Mark Kemp? I think it's a no from me. Michelle Hayward? I'm going to put my science head on here. Um, there's, there's an undoubted difference in risk between vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, and I suspect as we move forward and we have booster vaccines, that risk differential is going to increase. And I think there may well be that we need, as a government, to have an idea about what those levels of risk are, because if you have a high proportion of unvaccinated people your risks are running close on medical services, running out are much higher. Um, so I think there may well be some proof going forward. But it's just the same as, you know, I've had to have yellow fever vaccines to visit certain countries in the world. There are requirements, and, and I suspect that that might be where the world ends up. And it probably won't be our decision. It'll be the decision of airlines and other countries. OK, uh, madam, your name and question, please. Hi, my name's uh, Nikki Merritt. Um, I'd like to ask the candidates um, if they would agree that it's time that neurodegenerative diseases were taken out of the bracket of social care and that the care that people need for the last stages of these terminal illnesses were funded from taxation, just as the treatment of all other illnesses is. Joan Watterson. Uh, well, I've, uh, certainly in terms of nursing care, I've long been a believer that nursing care on the Isle of Man should be provided as a fundamental part of the National Health Service. Um, people shouldn't be having to sell their homes to, to pay for care. It should be something that is funded through the health service as part of something that we all pay into, we'll all need it, uh, because I just don't think the present way of doing it is equitable. Michelle Hayward. 
Um, yes, I think it should move out and it should be within healthcare. I actually think I'm, I'm always stunned that hospice services sit outside of a healthcare system when there are so many doctors and nurses that work in there and there are so many absolutely excellent staff, but we don't properly fund that because I think we recognise that as a society that's so important to us. Mark Kemp? I think it should sit within healthcare. I believe that, again, it's going back to the budget process. If we can find the money there, we know it's there actually. We can actually channel some of that, those savings into better uh, care, such as what you're talking about. And then there, there is another thing that we can actually explore. Obviously, it needs a lot of research, but we can, we can be looking at uh, dementia villages and things like this as well. Obviously, not out in the sticks, because people like to be close to what's familiar to them. But I think we need to look at this, this problem um, in, a, in a bigger scale as well. OK, Andrew Langan-Newton. Yeah, I'm in favour of a national social care model, similar to national health service model, but what that factors into it as well is choice. Choice for the individual user. If you go to the NHS, your medical, it's all reactive. So you have to accept the doctor, etc. But in a long-term care model, the individual should also have some autonomy about how they want care to be delivered. So I think a national social care model, like a health service model, where it's funded across the community, not an insurance model, but a long-term community-based investment model like the National Health Service, where we respect uh, the, the elderly population and we give them the care that they deserve. However, in that choice, we also give the individual choice about how they want that care delivered. And this is something that I think the next Timwald should be moving towards how we fund that social care model and be be um, strong in, in thinking about that and, and dealing with the difficult questions about that funding model, but the important questions about the delivery of the care that should be universal to our community, but also should factor in choice for the individual about how they want that care delivered. Okay, uh, your name and question, please. Hello, my name is Liz Leatherbarrow, and I would like to ask Juan if uh, he These could... are questions to all the candidates, madam. Afterwards, yes, I would ask Juan first of all to say a few words about uh, the um, Auditor General and what amount of money he feels that that person could save the Isle of Man in budgeting. Okay, I'll go for... And then I would like the opinions of the others Okay, afterwards. I'll ask the questions, madam. The Auditor General, Mark Kemp. Uh, well, we do need the Auditor General, but for some reason we've got a delay on that. I think it's, it's a positive step towards budgetary control and towards getting our finances under control. But beyond that, I can't, I can't really say what I think they're going to save um, because I've already talked about uh, reforming the budget process anyway. And I think there's probably about £20 million at the top end. So why do you, think, why do you think it's taken this long for an Auditor General? Juan, do you want to answer that one? Okay, uh, Michelle. Michelle, um. Um, I, I'll, I'll speak about from, from the audit process from local authorities. It's been compulsory for local authorities and local authority boards to have audits in place. I know that when we have those audit reports come through, it's actually really, really useful for the elected members to sit down there with somebody who's outside of the organisation, who steps you through, who looks at all the different parts and steps you into your, what your challenges are going to be in the future and going forward. I remember famously sitting there in a, in a Ports and Mary board meeting where the auditor said, just stop spending. And, and any of those who know the history of Ports and Mary will know how important that decision was. But it was absolutely critical advice. And with, with the right person in place, auditors are absolutely invaluable for running large organisations where there are multiple tasks going on. So big hopes for this. I don't want to make a sweeping generalisation, but I will. Uh, a lot of the population think that uh, local authorities and the government mistake public money for their own money. 
and they see a disconnect. They see. I've, they you see. Know, I, I've never, never, ever thought that. I've always thought that actually every pound of ratepayers' money that I've had a decision over when I was in Port St Mary is actually more precious than my own. If I want to fritter away five pound fifty on a cake and a coffee, that's my choice. Actually, at Port St Mary, much to the disgust of some of the members, I stopped us having bottled imported Sp Scottish spring water on the table because it cost £120 a year, and I thought it was just a waste of ratepayers' money. Andrew Langer-Newton. So, yeah, I think where we've been really let down, the Auditor General can benefit things by giving transparency to information and issues that aren't transparent at the moment, so that's going to be positive. But where we've been really let down is the accountability that should have been instilled by MHKs on government. Government's there to execute the laws, the, the decisions that Parliament passes, but we'll reverse the model. Actually, government's telling the MHKs what to pass, and it's the wrong way around. MHKs should be representing the people and holding government accountable when it doesn't do the things, or it does them with overspends, or it takes too long with the things what we want as a population. And so that issue needs, hopefully, will be addressed by the new Parliament. Is is it possible to reverse the trend of what you're representing in that the machine of government tells elected representatives what's going to happen? Well, hopefully we're seeing a positive development in terms of equality and pay. So MHK will no longer have this perverse issue where you get an incentive to be part of government, losing your independence, losing your independent ability to hold government account. Lord Lisvane, in his report, said it was just not tolerable from an international perspective to look at the Isle of Man and pretty much look at a one-party state when 87% of the MHK had the patronage of government. That's a system that's broken, that doesn't have transparency, that doesn't have accountability. Jewan Watterson. Gosh, the Auditor General, um, there's only 17 minutes of the show left, so I'll try and keep it to 12 of them. Um, this is something that is one of the Commonwealth benchmarks for democratic legislatures. Uh, the financial statements audit is a very, very small part of it. The real emphasis on this is the value for money. It takes the politics out of the value for money. The Public Accounts Committee has been identifying tens of millions of savings over the years, um, but it comes down to the politics of it and whether they get agreed by Tinwood. This is an independent person tasked with saving initially their own salary. Have they been appointed yet? Not, not yet. I'll come to that in a second. Um, the uh, being tasked with saving at least their own salary and, and office costs in the first instance with a target of three. Most auditors general around the world are saving between three and ten times the cost of providing that office. Now, we did put it out. We had a very, very narrow window if we wanted to get an appointment made by July. We uh, effectively rushed the recruitment uh, process because it took that long to, to get the approval of Tinwald. Um, it wasn't, therefore, possible. We had a, the, the window was so tight, we didn't feel that we had gave it a fair crack of the whip to get the right candidates in for that job. So it's something that will be re-advertised in the new house. Are you convinced this is going to work? Absolutely. Uh, your name and question, please. Um, my name's Ashton Lewis. What are the candidates' views on the fairness of the rates as a form of taxation? Andrew Langan-Newton. I think, yeah, there's been a long debate about rates and a long issue between communities which are very concentrated, like Douglas, and then communities which are much more dispersed around the Isle of Man. And um, I think we need a debate around that, but there's been long views upon that. I don't have a defined view at this moment on that, but... Going into the next parliament, I think it's going to be an open issue that we need to explore. Mark Kemp. Uh, yeah, there has been long protracted debates about it. There was a report done, wasn't there? Um, so an all-island rate policy, I think they decided, wasn't suitable. Um, in terms of the rates, yeah, I think it does need a little bit more discussion to get it right. And we do need to be mindful, because I think the current proposal is based on area of house and I think there does need to be consideration for single tenants as well. 
Uh, Michelle Hayward. I think you actually have to take the question back to what are we expecting our rates to pay for. And there are a number of things that local authorities charge rates for, which I'm not actually sure should come under local authorities. So street lighting, for example, seems to have ended up with local authorities historically because it was local authorities that put the lights in in their community. However, there is one supplier <laughs> who goes around, replaces them, goes around servicing and tells you when they need replacing again and, and, and deals with it. And I don't understand why that still comes under local authorities and it's not national. The same with waste collection. I don't understand why we don't have a national waste strategy, and that would move that away from a rates discussion as well. And then when you start looking at water and sewerage, which are the other components within those, apart from, you know, apart from the local services bit, but the other the components that we can measure, the water and sewerage, there are recognised standards for how much one person can generate in the way of sewage on average per day. Works out about 200 litres, in case you're interested. But I was, I was looking at this because I was looking at it in the context of how many millions of litres flow out of Peel every single day. Um, and, and the same for water usage as well. So I think there has to be an element there that recognises the occupancy of a house. You can be one person living in a house with 10 bathrooms. You can still only go to the toilet so many times a day. Where we've got 10 people living in one house with one bathroom and that toilet will be used 10 times more. So I think we're not looking at it very sensibly in terms of actually paying for the services that we're using. And I'd like to see something that's much more aligned to that. Okay. There will have to be some, some, some recognition of how much land you occupy, I think, just as a, that's how much street gets cleaned. Joan Watterson. Uh, yeah, I think there is a role for uh, property-based taxation in, in the overall mix, um, especially that, that, that's the only part that's basically non-resident people pay um, and certainly second property owners pay. Um, I think the, there is an issue around single um, occupier households that we need to make more equitable. I think they, they pay full amount. They should get a discount for that. I think one of the other um, unfair equity issues around rates is around the business rates and they are focused in the bigger towns and some of the richer parishes um, that's not necessarily the right way to do that either so centralization of the business rates to pay for business structures but what michelle's right when you take those big areas of of waste and street lighting out of the the local authority budgets um, there isn't actually a huge amount left and so you need to really um, look at what autonomy local authorities have and what we want them to do in order to be a, a part of that but ultimately it should be a system based on capital values uh, rather other than what a property cost to rent in 1969, which is just a completely bonkers system for the okay. modern day and age. Uh, your name and question, please. Uh, John Pennington. We now have equalities legislation, which ought to be helping the 15% or so of the population who suffer from disabilities, such as limited mobility, <laughs> vision loss and hearing loss. The private sector is required to adhere to this legislation, but what is the government and what ought the government to be doing? Mark Kemp. Uh, well, some of this, this is something that's actually come up on the doorsteps as well. And if you look around, we've got buildings around here that aren't uh, wheelchair accessible. So I, I feel government should be doing more to enforce uh, the act, to be perfectly honest with you. Yes, that might require uh, some increase in headcounts, something I'm generally against. But I think where it's needed to enforce these social issues then I think it's a good thing. Andrew Lang and Newton. Yeah, absolutely. And we see like pavements was a popular one on the doorstep coming up where people are being disadvantaged in a community where we should, public sector bodies should be taking a lead on this, making reasonable adjustments to the benefit of the users to, in, a, in a society that reflects a range of people and demographics. And, and we shouldn't leave people behind in that. And now there's a legal obligation to do that, to make reasonable adjustments. So um, absolutely, a government should be taking a proactive lead and not only retrofitting things, but how we design the future as well. 
Joan Watterson. Yeah, again, it comes down to uh, reasonable adjustments, people um, making their case heard, people approaching their MHKs and others to, to highlight what those issues are so that they can be rectified. Because unless you can necessarily see the world through that lens, it's not always um, obvious to uh, able-bodied people. And not every disability is, of course, uh, visible. But this is one of the other um, spurs for getting places like Church Road finished, the regeneration around there, because we still have, in Port Erin at least, um, a central business district that isn't really uh, wheelchair and uh, mobility friendly. Uh, Michelle Hayward. I think it's one of those things that ought to be enshrined in how local authorities and how the planning authorities look at things as well. Um, I think planning needs a number of, of tweaks to it. One, I'd like to see it looking at the environmental impact of any planning, but actually it, it, with its, its disability hat on, any planning that comes through, there should be a, a, an assessment of how accessible buildings are. We, we need to look somewhere, especially when we're doing stuff out onto streets, um, we'd have to accept things like more ramps for access or lifts for access. And I, having managed a lift at Ports Mary Town Hall, I know how difficult it can be to make those electronics work in a marine environment. So I think the, the less technical changes we can make, the better. But I think the other place that we risk excluding people is that we've moved to so much that's online and that's digital that we're actually excluding uh, people who can't access that format as well. And some of those people, especially, I dealt with a particularly lady who's got sight loss, who... Um, the internet is, is a, a minefield for You think her. there's a digital divide? There Absolutely. is a digital divide, and I think that disadvantages some of our disabled people even more than it does uh, in terms of uh, you know, normal paper copies. Uh, and and you wanted to follow up, sir? Yeah, I was asking, what is the government doing? Not, is what the, not what is the private sector expected to do? You look at the government website, and you can't call it user-friendly. Look at lost opportunities like Dudley's Promenade, all the Victorian boreholes, uh, boarding houses with the flights of steps. Nothing's been done about that. The only place that's get, uh, that has a ramped access is the Sefton Hotel. What about all the other premises on, uh, on the promenade? It's a, a lost opportunity for a cent the next century. Okay, all right, but that's something that the next uh, administration is going to uh, uh, look at as well. Uh, just a couple of more questions as well, and we come, <laughs> we come back to our old favorite, the legalization of medicinal and recreational cannabis. Andrew Lang and Newton. Yeah, I think this has been a popular one as well in the global debate, not so much on the doorstep in, in Russian, but I think we need an approach to cannabis that really reflects the science and really reflects compassion to the people who experience- Medicinal? Medicinal, I think that that's a closed debate really now. I think we're growing it. We've got licenses to grow it in the Isle of Man. I think we've moved on to when we're talking. So medicinal, and not, not an issue. Medicinal's really. an open door for you, yeah? Well, I think it's happening now. Okay. I, think that we, I think we wouldn't be pay, passing policies in the future Jolly about medicinal good. cannabis. And um, recreational? Yeah, I think we need an open public debate that engages the whole society and respects the whole range of views in our society because what we've been doing today is not working. Um, putting people in a criminal justice system, which is expensive for very small amounts of cannabis, is just not for fit for purpose. So we need to go straight away to decriminalisation and then we need an open debate about legalisation, understanding the complex issues around our society and both ranges okay. of views. Mark Kemp. So, I agree. Uh, decriminalisation of cannabis is an opportunity for the island to stop ruining the lives of young people who are making mistakes but also being a bit cold about this there's a, there's a tax incentive for us there we can tax the supply which would have to be fiercely regulated so what I would also add there is anyone that's dealing outside of that regulated supply off the jerby off you go okay uh, Michelle Hayward 
Medicinals all already in the in the pipeline. I think it's the issue of having doctors that are willing to prescribe it that, that seems to be the stumbling block at the moment. Um, in terms of recreational, I think again it's one of those things where if you look back at the history of of why alcohol is legal and tobacco is legal and yet somehow cannabis is not, it, uh, especially if you sit there and you look at the harms that those cause and the the implications for society, there isn't very much case to to sort of stand back and not go down the route of decriminalising. Watterson. Yeah, we've got a rather disconnected and, and fragmented approach to how we deal with cannabis uh, at the moment. Um, it, we have, but we don't have a policy really that, that joins that together. That's why in my manifesto I've called for a, a select committee to sort of try and square the circle, look at good examples from around the world as to where this works. Um, I, I am caught conscious and cautious about the, the, the um, psychosis effects of, of cannabis, about the unregulated nature of the product that we have at the moment. Um, these are offset somewhat about some of the business opportunities. But, of course, when we talk about uh, criminalising people for small amounts of cannabis, what isn't often reported by the press is that um, these people will have gone through normally a drug arrest referral service, then a police caution. So by the time they are going to court, even for small amounts, this is their third or fourth time through the system. And so uh, th there is that sort of uh, antisocial element That's as well. That's not always so that, the case. That okay. is always okay. the case. All right, now it's the time, amounts, ladies and gentlemen, where policy. each candidate will have one minute to uh, sum up their opinions and their pitch to you as a constituent in Russian. So anti-alphabetically, Juan Watterson. So I'm as passionate about... Um, Russian and the people and the community now as I was 15 years ago and um, if you're looking for an experienced local candidate but that rooted in the community then I think I'm your candidate on Thursday. Andrew Langan-Newton. This is the most important election that we've ever faced in 154 years of our democracy. The right to vote for your MHK to represent you and change is happening around the world and we can't sit by and just accept that change is going to happen here. We need to take decisions today because we can't wait five more years to transform our community with well-being at the core, to transform energy, to transform how we build affordable houses for people, how we have accountable democracy and governance and how we protect the environment. And vote for me and join with me on September the 23rd to bring this vision to effect. Mark Kemp. Okay, so I've been working for you for over 15 years behind the scenes. I've risked my career several times, even paid the price for speaking up. I'm an ex-teacher. I care about the future of our students, your children, grandchildren, nephews and nieces. I currently work in finance and I have skills and expertise to be an MHK. Now, ask yourselves, what do you want from an MHK? What do you really want? Do you want someone that will be passive and mindful uh, and scared to break convention and rules? Or do you want someone who will speak up? Do you want someone that will play by the rules or do you want someone that will rock the boat and shine a light on things when they're going wrong or where there's something nefarious going on. Consider and remember this. You are all a stakeholder in everything you see. You have a voice, you've paid your taxes, and you should get a say in how our island is run. I will fight for you. I will work for you. If you want to safeguard your future, if you want to reclaim your island, vote Kemp on the 23rd of September. Thank you, everybody. Michelle Haywood. Um, I chose to come and live in the Isle of Man over 15 years ago. It's where I've raised my family. Uh, we love the island. Uh, we love the way of life here, and I, as I'm sure many of you do, one of the things that's really come up to me when I've been on the doorstep is actually how much people say, I love being here, I love the environment, and, and then there's the but. And it's those but bits that have impact on people's lives, and it's those bits that I want to help 
uh, fix. It's though, sometimes it's little niggles, it's but I can't get an NHS dentist. And, and, and so there are those things that through through lives. Generally, we know we have a fairly, fairly good life here and, and we need to keep those elements of it, but we do need to move forward. I think I have the experience in local government. I have the experience of working with a number of government departments in different capacities. At times I've taught and I've lectured. I've worked with DEPA and DOI on quite a lot of projects. I've been a consultant there as well. So I understand how civil servants work and I think I could work with them in order to move us forward. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been hearing the candidates for the constituency of Russian. You've heard Michelle Haywood, Mark Kemp, Andrew Langan-Newton, and Juan Watterson. Uh, I have to say hello, but I mentioned uh, Andy Quayle, by the way, who's listening at the moment in a police academy in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, whose father loved the Whistle Stop Cafe. Everyone listens all over the world. Uh, just very quickly, we have one and a half minutes. So... Do you think the Isle of Man should accept Afghan refugees? Mark Kemp. Yes, but it has to be proportional. So those who can contribute to our GDP, we can bring in. Those who've been living below the poverty line and can't contribute to our GDP, we have an international development fund. We can sponsor those families in the UK. Andrew Langan-Newton. Yes, I am in favour of it. I think we've got a great society, a great community here, which can benefit with new people coming in and building within that vibrant community that we have. Michelle Haywood. Uh, yes, and I think it's a shame that we wait until there's a crisis before we start discussing asylum seekers and refugees. Jewan Watterson. Uh, happy to accept people coming to our community. The, the thing is that we have barriers to that. First of all, legal barriers about being able to offer asylum. We have uh, around housing policy. So I think we need to be practical. I think we can probably help far more people elsewhere in the, uh, in the world than we can here with our high cost of living. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow night, live on Manx Radio, 7 o'clock, we'll be at Seven Kingdoms in Douglas for the debate for the candidates for Douglas Central, our final debate. This coming Thursday, everything changes and it's down to you. I'm Andy Wint and tonight we've been live with the candidates for Russian at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Port Aaron.